what you have now is a Communist Party-run company, ByteDance, and its its most important overseas platform, TikTok, and it has a Communist Party committee. The editor-in-chief is the chairman of that Communist Party committee. That Communist Party committee and ByteDance have uh, inked agreements with China's internal security apparatus, the Public Security Bureau, promising that they will make sure that their algorithms are informed by, quote, correct political direction. Before we get to our conversation, a little bit of housekeeping. We're moving our publishing of our episodes from Fridays to Mondays. So starting with today, keep an eye out in your feed when you start your week. Now on to our conversation with Matt Pottinger. From civil disobedience we've not seen since Tiananmen Square, and letting go of zero COVID policy, and a leadership tightening its political grip in unprecedented ways, this has been quite a few weeks in China. What is U.S. policy in response? In response to the protests, dealing with semiconductors, dealing with Taiwan, and also what's U.S. policy on TikTok? Matt Pottinger returns to the podcast. Matt covered China and lived in China as a journalist for Reuters and then the Wall Street Journal. And then in his early 30s, he made quite a career change. He joined the U.S. Marine Corps and had multiple combat deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan. Later on, Matt played an instrumental role in the geopolitical story of our time, our topic today, reshaping the West's relationship with China, where he served as the Deputy National Security Advisor in the Trump administration and was the architect of the administration's strategy towards China. A lot of those policies endure even today through the Biden administration. Today, Matt is regularly called upon by policymakers on both sides of the aisle to consult on U.S. policy towards China. He recently co-authored an essay for Foreign Affairs titled Xi Jinping in His Own Words. We're going to talk a lot about that essay today. I highly recommend you read it. Matt is a distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institute and chair of the China program at the Foundation for Defensive Democracies. This is Call Me Back. And I'm pleased to welcome back to this podcast, fan favorite, Matt Pottinger, I get a lot of, I got, there's like three or four guests we have uh, that are repeat guests that uh, I hear from folks that they can never get a, uh, enough of. One of them is Matt Pottinger. So Matt, I appreciate you bringing your rock star status back to the podcast. How are you? Dan, no, it's it's really good to be with you. Uh, I, you you've, uh, that, that's a big honor if that's true, because uh, you, you've got a lot it's of great true. guests on your show that I love uh, love listening to. So thanks for having me on. Uh, happy to have you. Sort of bizarre times, uh, which I guess is is um, consistent with um, when when I ask you to come on to banter. Uh, bizarre times beginning with the month we just had uh, in China, the month of November. So yeah. it seems like there was a lot going on in November, and and we were all sort of consuming the the headlines that were not even daily, but like hourly. And can you just take a step back and try to explain to me what what actually was happening in China in this past month? Yeah, yeah. So November uh, 2022, w- w- pretty remarkable because it starts with Xi Jinping having just finished his 20th Party Congress in which he uh, not, I mean, to con- say that he consolidated power would be a, an understatement. He He essentially... Uh, wiped out any uh, any sign of uh, uh, of uh, any other faction in the in the Chinese Communist Party. He uh, you know retired people uh, who had been uh, more more associated with some of Xi's predecessors in power, and he even you know we can talk later about it. But he you know there was even the what what looked to be the uh, Involuntary removal from the uh, Party Congress uh, of uh, Hu Jintao, the immediate pre- predecessor. I, so then you 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 come into uh, into November with the the really the realization, just the growing realization that the Chinese economy is cratering, and it's cratering because of uh, more than any other factor, 
the zero COVID policy that's been in place for years now uh, in, in China. And so what we saw at the beginning of the month was kind of interesting. You saw the first creeping signs that there was there was a desire to try to to try to shake off this policy that that is uh, bears the personal imprint of Xi Jinping by fine tuning it and doing things like uh, changing the uh, the the incentives to, for officials so that they would err on the side of being less zealous in their in their uh, uh, execution of the zero COVID policy as opposed to punishing officials for being too lax. So this this is how the month started off. And it looked like they were trying to go into something that I would call a controlled burn, you know, to let this virus start burning through the population, but it but it, in some kind of a controlled fashion, given that Chinese people are not vaccinated with uh, advanced vaccines. They don't have access to mRNA vaccines. That was a policy decision by Beijing not to uh, not to approve their own and not to approve foreign mRNA vaccines. Uh, there was a decision um, to um, see, you know, b- basically incentivize officials to not to be overzealous suddenly. Uh, but the thing about Omicron, as we found out, is there's no such thing as a as a controlled burn. It, it, this thing is, is uh, the honey badger of uh, of, of uh, you know COVID variants. It just it just don't care. The thing is just going to rip like a wildfire if you give it the opportunity. And so as the thing began, can I can to I just rip, just for just for our listeners that I just want to spend one minute on the on the numbers because I don't think people fully, I certainly didn't fully appreciate it. So so if you look at China's elderly population, so the population that's most at risk. The latest numbers I saw, China has a population of 264 million people over 60 years old, 36 million people over 80 years old. Mm. So that's that's like a 300, 300 million elderly people. Over, well over 10% of them have never been vaxxed, not to mention those that got the first two shots never got a booster. So according to one study I saw, some, it's been like 18 months since second doses were given out to the population that did get vaccinated, which basically means very few people are really vaccinated in this country. Compared to the U.S., where 98.5% of people 65 years and older have had at least one shot of mRNA, uh, of an mRNA vaccine. In China, it's not only... The elderly that have these big numbers of of non-vax, but you have huge parts of the population that haven't been vaxxed in eighteen months. You got it. So it means that China's got whatever the opposite of herd immunity is, right? You've got a, a population of people who are immunologically naive to a virus that uh, the rest of the world has been uh, wrestling with and and getting sick from and dying from and vaccinating against uh, for three years now. Uh, and so that is a tinderbox that, that 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 helps explain why Beijing is so reluctant to uh, to, to shift away from zero COVID. They painted themselves themselves into a corner with these policies. Uh, I mean, it is it is Xi Jinping's personal policy. We're trying we we you know I've scratched my head about why it is that Beijing would not permit foreign uh, mRNA vaccines. Uh, especially when they had the they they had negotiated a Chinese company Fosun International had negotiated the right to distribute the BioNTech you know which is the same as the Pfizer vaccine uh, all all the way back in the spring of uh, of 2020 and and we, we a couple of colleagues and I were able to trace the decision we're, we're fairly confident to a couple of speeches that Xi Jinping gave in March of 2020 so very early in the pandemic when he when he said he visited a couple of biotechnology uh, research labs and said China will control the core technologies uh, for biotech especially core technologies related to covid and the signal that that sent from interviews that we've done just talking to people across china the signal that that sent was we're not allowed to use foreign stuff we we have to have our own we're not going to be allowed to import a vaccine that the rest of the world is using and so through that decision three almost you know three years ago china has put itself into this incredibly precarious position right now we think of china before the COVID crisis, the the conventional narrative about China, uh, 
among the academy, among in finance circles, in tech circles, was that China was this innovation juggernaut in a number of sectors, not the least of which was biotech and pharmaceuticals. And they don't have an mRNA vaccine. So how do you square that? I mean, it's one thing for China to say, we're not going to we're not going to um, integrate with the rest of the world's pathway to an mRNA vaccine. We're going to do it on our own. But then when you layer on this this uh, widely held view up until the last few years that the the China tech innovation steamroller can't be stopped and it's going to steamroll through Asia and it's going to steam steam through roll through Europe and ultimately steamroll through the U.S. And then you just see how they can't even produce and disseminate a reliable vaccine so what what what, where's the gap yeah yeah so look i mean the the hallmark of xi jinping's rule is he's really been guided by a fear of um the chinese communist party succumbing to the same fate as the soviet communist party so that it's the most important guide point for for understanding what what uh uh you know what makes him tick and so on what he has said is that we must control by we he means the communist party and by the communist party he means himself personally as the core of that party uh that we must control the the tools of dictatorship that's the actual term he uses not mine the tools of dictatorship and by the tools of dictatorship he means that he that that he must control a strong leader at the top of the party with its monopoly on power must control Information flow, ideology, textbooks, uh, the the uh, uh, military, the security apparatus, uh, but also um, the economy. And so, China is still innovative. China has it has these pools of incredible talent. It produces more engineers than any place on earth. Uh, but but the hallmark of the Xi Jinping era is that he and the party will decide where capital will be directed now and 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 where it shall not be directed and it, it, as a general rule of thumb and we've seen this through his actions particularly over the last 2 years he is not fond of consumer facing technology including big tech platforms which have been the most dynamic part of the chinese economy right hence the clampdown <laughs> on like alibaba Alibaba and and on DD, which was the uh, rideshare right. app, which got got Uber, uh, kneecapped, yeah. um, and uh, and many many others uh, where that where those came from, and where he is now directing capital is towards what he calls quote the real economy close quote and and by that he means hard technologies that have uh, generally have dual use purposes that, that that they have civilian commercial uses but they also have uh, uses at improving China's military capability and its internal repression and surveillance capabilities. And so so the, the types of things that he's looking at are semiconductor design and manufacturing. He's bulldozed perhaps a couple hundred billion US dollars into a, sort of a state-led program to make China uh, the world's leading manufacturer of chips. It includes things like nuclear fission and fusion. It, it includes autonomous systems uh, advanced manufacturing. Uh, it, it definitely includes things in the biotech space, um, which uh, w- which we can come back to in a moment. You know, b- because it hasn't helped them uh, overcome uh, the mRNA hurdle, uh, which which they, they really could have done. But um, uh, but 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 it's these kinds of things that he considers to be the real economy. It's manufacturing heavy. It's not consumer driven items. Okay, so they don't have access for now at least, to a reliable vaccine, and the population is under-vaccinated. Now, let's yeah, so, but maybe we, Yeah, but maybe we... Yeah, I mean, pick up, pick up where, where, where we left off with, the, with their uh, uh, slight opening, right? The loosening that began at the beginning of November. The thing took off like wildfire. China suddenly was reporting the highest uh, daily caseloads of COVID in, 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 ever. And... I think they started to panic. And so what you saw was a, a reversion uh, to the draconian lockdowns like we saw, uh, li- like the spring lockdown in Shanghai. 
And, and some of these lockdowns uh, were hardest and uh, in those places that were beginning to experiment with loosening, like the city Shijiazhuang, which is a the capital of Hebei province, not far from Beijing, they had been experimenting with a with sort of a looser approach, but then they then then they had to snap back with a vengeance. Um, the city of Urumqi, which is the capital of the Xinjiang region in the northwest of China, which is famous right now for its repression of uh, traditionally ethnic uh, Muslim minority groups like the Uyghurs. Uh, that that uh, area over the over the summer had been experimenting with a more open policy, and then cases started to spread as as tourists were visiting Urumqi over the summer and then going back to other parts of China. They were bringing COVID with them, so there was a draconian snapback lockdown that uh, has been going for more than a hundred days. And so that so so you have this sort of oscillation between experimenting with a looser policy and then snapping back to tougher lockdowns than ever. That that was what was going on over the course of November until we got to the end of November, when you had a a, a few things happen in short order. But, but before before we get to the end of November, let me just ask you: I'm still just to zero in on what the motivation was for those 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 paradoxical paradoxical moves that you're describing. Was it in response to people getting frustrated with the um, with the intensity, uh, the persistent intensity of the lockdowns, or was it in response to meaning they knew they had a civil unrest, they knew had they had a political problem on the ground among regular people, just yeah. frustrated, uh, or was it the, motivated by look at some point we got to reopen this economy? Yeah, it's, we're it's, really it's, suffering it's, economically. It's both, but the the real spark was an act of civil disobedience. And so, so, but but first, what you know, what's going on with the economy? Um, local governments are running out of money; they're going broke, and that is because the way that local governments have been making their money and able to to collect revenue over the last couple of decades is yes, tax collection, but more important than that is the sale of land. They sell land to property developers. The property developers. Uh, uh, borrow money from state banks. They build. Uh, the, you know, they sell apartments, and, and this 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 cycle has been what has provided most of the provincial and, and city and local level financing. That came to an end uh, a couple of summers ago when Xi Jinping, uh, quite understandably, came came to view the uh, the overheated and badly overleveraged uh, residential property sector is a major uh, threat to uh, their financial sector, you know, to the whole financing system. And so he imposed some uh, draconian, well, I wouldn't call them, he, he imposed some very strict rules that he called the three red lines. And in short, what those were designed to do was to prick the, the property bubble and, and really uh, shift uh, Chinese uh uh, the Chinese economy towards other uh, endeavors than than building apartments that in some cases uh, just become uh, a, a target of speculation. You know, there are far more apartments than there are people uh, w- uh, available to buy and live in those apartments. So the bumper sticker that Xi Jinping had was, you know, houses are for living in, not for speculation. But that dried up that revenue stream. And so what you have right now are Governments that don't have enough money to even pay for the testing for COVID that they're required under the zero COVID policy to to uh, carry out uh, constantly, they don't have the money. So you you have this strange situation where you you actually have testing companies going bankrupt in China when there's never been higher demand for testing because no one can pay for it, and and so part of it was an economic reason, uh, you know, the primary reason. But then you had the spark in the city of Zhengzhou which is the capital city of Henan province. Sometimes Chinese people refer to Zhengzhou as the Chicago of China. It's central. It's a major uh, transportation node. Uh, lots of manufacturing that goes on there, including uh, the, the, the guys at Foxconn who have about 200,000 people working in a major factory. It's the size of a city itself. And they make our iPhones. They make iPhones for the world market. And... Uh, there was some, there were some positive cases there uh, in October that led to a uh, uh, a lockdown the, the attempt to impose a lockdown on the two hundred thousand workers there and here you had 
the first known major act of civil disobedience uh, over the last, uh, you know, more than a couple of years where people just started jumping the fence. They started clipping barbed wire, uh, and, uh, hopping over uh, barbed wire and chain link fences by the thousands to get out of the, uh, to get out of the factory where they worked making our iPhones uh, so wow. that they wouldn't be locked down. And so that, that was a, that really shook the system. And I think that that helped uh, precipitate that first experiment with loosening a month ago. Okay. So then, so that gets going. Uh, and then we start to see this phenomenon pop up all over the country, right? Or not maybe all over the country, but in a number of very important provinces, the, the civil unrest. Yeah, well, the 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 uh, the civil unrest followed uh, the sort of snapback that took place after case. You know, within just a week or or ten days, the caseloads uh, were coming back so high in mid November that they started to reimpose these lockdowns again, and then and then the the Foxconn plant. Uh, in Zhengzhou again became the site of not just an act of civil disobedience of people hopping the fence, but people who had been lured back and promised that they would have adequate food and water and and, and so forth, who came back, did not get, uh, reportedly were not paid what they were told they were going to get paid. And then the lockdown uh, was tightened. And so that led to a, a, a riot at the Foxconn plant that had to be put down by police wearing riot gear uh, uh, and, you know, shields and, and, and the like, but that was, that, um, was then followed by the, the, the biggest spark of all, which was a, a literal one. It was a fire that broke out in an apartment building mm-hmm. in Urumqi. Remember, I just mentioned that Urumqi has been under, under lockdown for more than a hundred days. People are going, going crazy. Uh, but a fire broke out in a building and the fire department, when it responded to the fire, was unable to get close to the building. Uh, and and we've we've read that there are a couple of uh, r- possible reasons for that. Both of them uh, directly related to the zero COVID policy, and that is that there were police barricades, uh, according to some accounts, that didn't that that got in the way of the fire truck response. The other is that all of the private vehicles parked around the city, all of the car batteries had gone dead because no one had driven their cars or started their cars in months due to the lockdown. So cars couldn't be moved. And so the fire truck was trying to spray its water from, you know, a a, a block away. And uh, uh, at least 10 people uh, perished in those flames. Some videos of the people screaming out the windows asking to be uh, rescued, one of, one of the most horrific videos, made its way across uh, China before sensors were able to catch up with that. That was the spark that led to the first set of, of, uh, of demonstrations across China directed at the central government, breaking out simultaneously in numerous cities and on numerous college campuses for the you know since 1989 so the first time in 33 years that we've seen protests like that so i want to you you brought up 1989 so tiananmen square so in 1989 the chinese communist party clamps down on protests in beijing and they basically use brute force right their surveillance system their technology capabilities their cyber capabilities are not obviously anything comparable to the era we Mm. live in today and so they they it was just visually um obvious that this was just like tanks rolling literally literally like all but rolling over people and just slaughtering you know these these young um student protesters compare that to what a clampdown looks like today yeah yeah so 1989 like you said i mean it it was brute force they used young soldiers carrying rifles and machine guns uh and driving armored personnel carriers and tanks to crush the uh, 1989 pro-democracy protests uh hundreds if not thousands died uh in in those uh you know in that crackdown and what what china has done in the in the three decades since is uh they have funded their their domestic security apparatus uh, to a degree that that no society has ever seen in, in history. They spend more money on their internal uh, repression system than they spend even on their military. And their military is now rivaling uh, the United U.S. military in terms of the levels of spending, especially when you compare it to purchasing uh, parity, right? So so they, they, they have acquired 
anti-riot gear, uh, which which gives them some uh, options other than opening fire on crowds. But far more important than that are the um, really the totalitarian uh, uh, digital surveillance. You've got hundreds of millions of public cameras that are uh, 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 around uh, Chinese cities that are backed with artificial intelligence, facial recognition software. Everyone carries around their own surveillance device in the form of a smartphone. Um, and meaning, meaning they're they're involuntarily. Every citizen is involuntarily. Oh, totally. um, providing uh, well, look, surveillance just to, capabilities Just to give you a sense of, of how deep the, the, the security apparatus goes into your personal phone in China, uh, owners of phones uh, made by Huawei uh, r- reported this week that, all, that protest-related content that they'd saved on their phones, including videos and web postings, all began to vanish from their phones involuntarily. Um, so all, everything you do, everything you communicate, every, every site you visit, every, every dollar you spend, because in China, you don't, people don't use cash anymore. You use, um, you use digital payment systems that are carefully monitored, uh, by the state. They, they know everything about where you are, who you interact with, what you're thinking, what you're reading, uh, what photos and and video images you have on your, your phones. And so the other thing they've been doing now is really stopping people on the streets and in subways to make people open their phones. And then they're searching for what apps as well as what photographs are on the phone. If you have a virtual private network or you have a Western platform like Twitter or Instagram uh, or YouTube on your phone, that can be grounds for uh, a fine or, or, uh, or even arrest. And so these are these are the same techniques that they've been using for for the last six years out in Xinjiang, where you've got an archipelago of concentration camps now for ethnic minorities. They're beginning to use those techniques in places like Shanghai and Beijing and Nanjing uh, and Zhengzhou now as well. So, I mean, you you've said that what the U.S. contends with in its competition with China is a a military, a conventional military, and nuclear capability in China. That's there's nothing comparable uh, that the U.S. has had to deal with that in, in terms of what China has is at at its disposal, at least in the nuclear age. That that we're dealing now with the country at a whole other level. And what you're saying now is whatever they're investing in that in those capabilities is actually on par with what they're investing on their domestic security and surveillance, which is extraordinary. Yeah, and and they're also exporting that d- domestic surveillance system not only to places like Iran, you know, their ally. Uh, uh, but also to uh, other 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 countries in Latin America and beyond. We can talk we can talk about that on another podcast someday. It's a very troubling um, uh, sort of trend. But but in spite of this, in spite of this, you have numerous cities, uh, uh, numerous college campuses that break out in spontaneous uh, protest against zero COVID and in solidarity with the people in Urumqi. Uh, who perished in that in that terrible fire? So, so you know, Chinese people know that the, the Beijing has these uh, means at its disposal, which is all the more reason why we should be in awe of the bravery of those who decided to stand up. The fact that Beijing is now starting to back away again from draconian lockdowns and it's starting to accelerate this loosening is directly. Uh, thanks to those young students, those workers at places like the Foxconn factory, and just regular everyday citizens who uh, who gathered on street corners to uh, to speak out and speak up and and uh, show solidarity with uh, uh, with with uh, uh, people, including ethnic Uyghurs as well as ethnic Han Chinese in in Urumqi in that fire. So. This is this is an really kind of an, an awesome, awe-inspiring act of bravery. People know that they are going to face severe consequences and already are facing severe consequences for showing up. But I want to come back to the paradox of the of the government of the communist Chinese Communist Party's approach because okay, so in response to the protests, they're loosening up. And at the same time you say as a result of the loosening up and the and the suboptimal vaccines that the that China has to distribute and how far behind they are in vaccinations 
they've made their peace with the fact that the COVID is going to rip through the population. And then you have a healthcare system that is not capable of supporting and caring for a population at this scale that could be suddenly dealing with the consequences of COVID ripping through it. There just aren't enough hospital beds. There isn't enough high quality health care. I mean, people have these Marxist fantasies about how much better and equal and uh, uh, and and tolerable health care is in in communist countries. And we're about to we're about to see a test case in that on how good this health care system is, because if COVID's about to rip through the Chinese population at the numbers you are projecting and the and the you have data on the number of hospitals and hospital beds, it just doesn't add up. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. It's going to be horrendous. Uh, you're not going to see, um, an enormous amount, uh, because of, of censorship. Um, you're not going to, going to, to be able to see in real time, except through, uh, snippets of video and, and, uh, and, and, uh, witness testimony that, that bravely, uh, gets shared with the world. But what we're going to see is is a horrendous testing of um, of the the medical capacity of China, and we should also hold in awe uh, the doctors and nurses that are going to bear the brunt of this, and they're going to bear the brunt of it thanklessly because there is not going to be um, uh, permitted uh, news coverage on uh, the the significant spike in cases and in deaths that are that are going to occur there. Look, we're moving from a zero COVID policy to a, what's going to look like a zero death policy, except people are going to be dying by by the tens and then hundreds of thousands, if not more. But Beijing is going to forbid the reporting of COVID deaths. That they're going, and and we've seen this testimony from very brave Chinese journalists who've written about it. Uh, Mu Rongxuecun is one of them who who wrote a a book, Deadly Quiet City, that's out now in in English language. In 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 his uh, accounts, he he interviewed uh, Chinese doctors who were dealing with the COVID cases at the very beginning of the of the pandemic, and they were instructed explicitly to sign death certificates fraudulently 100% of the time. So everyone who died of COVID, the doctors were required to attribute those deaths to causes other than COVID. And that's going to continue, uh, except on, on, on a mass scale. China only still only has a death toll for the, for the whole three years of the pandemic, the death toll is still stands at just a little over five thousand people, even though we know that there are there are millions of people uh, who, who've uh, who've uh, caught uh, COVID. So so this is going to be uh, an act of uh, in, incredible censorship and, and repression and suppression of information. But behind the scenes, the doctors and nurses are going are about to go into uh, the fight of their lives. Okay, so now that was November. Now let's rewind the tape back to October, which you talked, you referenced uh, a little bit, but I just want to get it. October, we had this extraordinary 20th party Congress of the uh, Chinese Communist Party. Uh, there was this dramatic removal of Xi's predecessor, Hu Jintao. Can you go back to that, talk about the significance of it, what happened to the party Congress, why this was so unprecedented? Yeah, well, look, the, the party Congress, um, uh, w- marked the end of the first decade of the of the Chinese dictator's rule and the beginning of his second decade. Uh, you you really get a five year term, uh, so this will be his third five year term. But because Xi Jinping did not identify or elevate anyone who could conceivably be considered a successor to him, what he was really marking. Uh, was that that he's got? He, it, it's at it's at best halftime right now in the in Xi Jinping's rule that he um, he intends to rule for at least another decade. Um, he codified his ideology uh, and his worldview uh, into the party charter, you know, the Communist Party charter, um, uh, literally through a resolution that amended that charter, but also through his his work report that he uh, issued. Uh, like like every general secretary of the Communist Party issues at the beginning of the Party Congress, and and what he focused on was this idea of struggle as really the new guiding principle under his rule. Struggle that word um, is a is really a Stalinist. It's the word struggle in the Stalinist and Maoist sense of the word, uh, and it has a lot of meanings. But it, but it's really about uh, identifying and isolating internal 
uh, enemies, enemies internal to the party, internal to China and external to China, and then mobilizing the party and all of its uh, formidable security uh, capabilities and, and, and also really the acolytes of the party against those enemies within the party, uh, within China and beyond China's borders. And so that, I just say that one thing, now, Matt, I, I, mm -hmm. I just, one, one of the reasons <laughs> I like staying in touch with you is when you read the Western accounts of these meetings, like the Western account of this 20th Party Congress, you get the official translations of what happened at these meetings. And you've pointed out to me that that the Communist Party changes, like really micromanages these translations. So for what, what is seen in terms of Western media consumption is not actually the words that were chosen. And you, like th this one you've zeroed in on, right? Struggle was in was you if you actually can do the translation from Chinese, which I cannot, you can, and people who work with you can. Um, yeah, but, but but the but the official translation to English did not use the word struggle. That's right. That's right. The the word is dou zhang, dou zhang in Chinese, and it was uh, it was selectively translated. I think once they mentioned the word struggle in the in the Xinhua English language, but all of the other references to struggle were. Uh, were deliberately mistranslated using euphemisms like improving efficiency or, uh, or persistence. You know, uh, per, yeah, yeah, yeah. Persi you know the, these these kinds of phrases. Uh, persistent hard work was was uh, was one of them. And so the party is is uh, doesn't really want the outside world to know what it how the how the party and how Xi Jinping talk when they're talking to themselves. Which is which are the important conversations that are taking place. So if you look at like like we we did in this foreign affairs piece that that, that uh, Matthew Johnson, uh, who's a, a colleague at the Hoover Institution, and David Fife, yeah. who you know, uh, who, yep. who uh, was was in the State Department, uh, and I, what we did was we looked at ten years worth of Xi Jinping's internal facing speeches, as well as documentary films that he commissioned and textbooks that uh, quote uh, directly his ideology, the state ideology of Xi Jinping thought. Um, uh, the, the, uh, and, and what we found is that frequently the party doesn't translate those speeches at all into English, or when they do, they wait weeks or months or years before, uh, before even releasing those speeches uh, in Chinese form. Uh, but these are these are the important speeches. It's not what Xi Jinping says when he's meeting with a foreign dignitary or when he's uh, giving a speech at Davos. It's the speeches he delivers to the Central Commission of the Communist Party. That is the guidance that he's giving to that whole formidable system of almost a hundred million Communist Party members, so that they know uh, what's what, what 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 his priorities are, and how to conduct it. So, if if you if you wade through those speeches, which haven't been translated into English. Uh, and it's it's not fun work. I got to tell you, it, but you 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 end up with far greater insight at the end of that exercise about what matters because there's there are consistent threads uh, about uh, that that really um, paint a picture of, of his worldview in his own words. Okay, so I want to quote from this foreign affairs piece. I mentioned the piece in the in the introduction. It's it's a it's a terrific essay. I, I cannot recommend it enough. Again, it's it's called uh, Xi Jinping in his own words, what Chi what China's leader wants and how to stop him from getting it. Uh, we're going to post it in the show notes. But I just want to quote from it. So you, you, we often point to Putin describing the breakup of the Soviet Union or the fall of the former Soviet Union as the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. And you point out that it's not just Vladimir Putin who's made that point about the Soviet Union. Xi Jinping has also pointed to the for former Soviet Union. And in this foreign affairs piece, you point to a speech that the Xi gave, a closed-door speech to uh, Communist Party leadership in December of 2012. So, you know, basically a decade ago, yeah. uh, just right after the U.S. presidential election when Barack Obama was was reelected, and I might point out in, a, in an election where Mitt Romney pointed out uh, that, that Russia was a, uh, was a major geopolitical threat and was derided for it. But here Xi is pointing to the experience of Russia and the former Soviet Union. And I want to quote from this, because apparently a Chinese journalist, according to you guys, um, released the speech in, in early 2013. And Xi and, and writes, again, a decade ago, why did the Soviet Union disintegrate? 
Why did the Communist Party collapse? Why did the Soviet Communist Party collapse? An important reason was their was that their an important reason was that their ideals and beliefs had been shaken. It's a profound lesson for us to dismiss the history of the Soviet Union and the Soviet Communist Party, to dismiss Lenin and Stalin, and to dismiss everything else is to engage in historic nihilism, and it confuses our thoughts and undermines the party's organization on all levels. So he's looking, here Xi is looking at the experience of the former Soviet Union and saying it is easy to get confused by this, it is historical nihilism, and we got to be on guard or we are headed for the same path. Yeah, you got it. I mean, this is this is the first major address that we know about uh, after his elevation to the general secretary almost exactly 10 years ago, as you said. And the speeches that follow that one uh, follow very different, uh, very, very similar themes. In January 5th, 2013, he gives a major address to members of the Central Committee, and and uh, my colleagues and I have come to view that as really the, his inaugural address. In essence, it's the closest thing to an inaugural address. But but he hits very similar themes and basically says, "Look, the the mission here is uh, is to ensure that we achieve communism and that uh, capitalism uh, perishes, uh, and uh, and and it is inevitable that it will perish, and that socialism, by which he means socialism, is practiced by." The single-party dictatorship uh, uh, be- becomes uh, the standard for the world. So, you know, people people may may scoff at that and say, "Yeah, but I mean, that's not realistic." Maybe it's not realistic. I, I happen to think it's not uh, realistic that he's going to achieve that goal. But the problem is, I'm not convinced that Xi Jinping, do, you know, understands that. Okay, that that, that that Xi Jinping understands that his his you know. Uh, reach really exceeds his grasp on these issues, much like his best and most intimate friend. That's his quote in describing Vladimir Putin, who uh, thought that he could uh, uh, topple uh, and annex the whole country of Ukraine in a matter of days. And here we are almost a year later into the bloodiest war in Europe uh, since 1945. And, uh, you know, Xi Jinping, I, I think, um, may have... Uh, ambitions and goals that at a minimum we we need to understand and and respect that these are it, it, deeply held deeply rooted uh, beliefs and goals on the part of uh, one of the most powerful people in the world and i want to there's another document you guys uh refer to document number nine i guess of uh communique on the current state of the ideological sphere uh which was leaked out in the summer of 2013, where there seems to be a fixation with what uh, is referred to as, quote, color revolution. And as you point out, this term originated in the first decade of the of this century when a series of uprisings in the former Soviet Union um, became known by colorful names. And, you know, there was the there was Georgia's Rose Revolution uh, in 2003, Ukraine's Orange Revolution in 2004, Kyrgyzstan's Tulip Re- Revolution in 2005. Um, and so there were, there were all these color revolutions, which it's just interesting that he, um, Xi and his leadership are focused on that as like the real threat or, or, the, or, the, or the seeds of real threats to, or was in the case of these former Soviet republics. And now you're seeing versions of that right now in China. These are, I mean, they may not be defined by color. They're not color revolutions, but this is exactly what he was afraid of. Yeah, exactly. And so you mentioned document number nine, uh, which was also, it was a secret document that uh, that was leaked. And, uh, but it, it is unambiguous. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party does not want the outside world to know about things like document number nine. I remember uh, confronting at an event, a senior Chinese official, uh, I think it was in late 2013 to, and asked her about uh, document number nine. And she, she just flat out denied uh, th- there being such a document said, uh, you know, what don't, year, don't what talk. year was this that you confronted her? Uh, I think it was late 2013. And, oh, wow. and so she just said, after his leak. Uh, look, you know that you're talking in rumors," she said. In fact, this document, everyone, it is one of the, it is an extremely important document within uh, the Communist Party because it 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 it's basically designed to stamp out what it calls quote false ideological trends, and it includes a long list of those things: constitutional democracy, 
the notion that values are universal, that Western, uh, what we sometimes call Western values are universal. Remember, China China has signed up to uh, the the UN conventions that that state that these values are, uh, are, are universal about human rights and and civil uh, and civic rights. Um, here in their internal documents, they're saying no. <laughs> the the concept of civil society, it says, is verboten. Um, economic neoliberalism, journalistic independence, uh, challenging uh, the party's uh, version of history—all of these things. Uh, are, are really, uh, and it, it also warns against, as you mentioned, color revolution, right? And this is the thing that really keeps Xi Jinping up at night. The idea that um, people are, you know, in neighboring countries or at home are going to begin agitating for those same rights that the Communist Party externally claims to uphold, but internally uh, in documents like this one say are totally verboten and, and pose a grave threat to uh, the Communist Party dictatorship. So, uh, so, so this is, this is the stuff that, that really matters. It's, it, these are the, these are the, this is the guidance that the hundred million nearly members of the Chinese Communist Party are following day in and day out. Was, is this, is this fixation on other uprisings in the case of the former Soviet Union, a, a, a real Xi, is it like unique to Xi or previous or predecessors of Xi focused on other such revolutions or uprisings in the form, like the 1956 uprising in Hungary or the 1968 uprising in Prague or the 8081, you know, protest movements in Poland that, you know, this, the Soviets of the Warsaw Pact had to clamp down on each one of those in various forms. Were previous, were predecessors of Xi focused on those the way Xi is focused on the color revolutions of the early 2000s? Yeah, they were. And, and I mean, those, those color revolutions that, you know, began at the beginning of the century uh, were things that, um, uh, you know, Xi's predecessor, Hu Jintao, was very concerned about. Uh, the, remember, there was talk of this Jasmine uh, uh, revolution potentially breaking out in China. I mean, his predecessors were equally, well, I, I would say they were also concerned, but Xi Jinping was the first leader at the very top to begin talking openly about color revolution as a major threat the way that he has. Uh, he uses that phrase um, uh, uh, not only in documents like uh, document number nine, but but he is he is quoted that that um, that phrase uh, much more recently and personally, including uh, in conversation with Vladimir Putin and in their readouts of of uh, meetings with Vladimir Putin and discussion of their no limits pact that they uh, uh, agreed to in February of this year, right on the eve of of Putin's reinvasion. Uh, an attempt to decapitate uh, the government of Ukraine. So, uh, so look, Xi Jinping is is a product of the party that he now heads. He is not a, a uh, total aberration in terms of the end states and the goals that he's seeking. Uh, what sets him apart is the speed at which he's trying to to achieve them, uh, and the means by which he's trying to to achieve those uh, end states. So, so his personal imprint is uh, on every policy today. He is the most important person to read and watch and understand if you want to know where China is being steered uh, and, and, and what it's, uh, at least its immediate future looks like. When I look at, but before we, before we let you go, when I look at some of the other personalities that he has elevated or he has made extremely relevant, I just, you, you said a number of these figures in your, um, number of these names in your foreign affairs piece. I just want to, uh, focus on two of them because I think they speak to a lot of what's going on and what we're dealing with. So, so one is, and I, and I may mispronounce the name, He Weidong, who is, uh, who's a military leader in China and has just been elevated by Xi to be one of the two vice chairmen of the, of the military commission. So what's, w- explain what that means yeah, to be sure. vice chairman. Yeah. 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 So, so, uh, um, himself Xi is the chairman. Yeah, you're right. Xi Jinping's got a lot of titles, and uh, the least important of which is president, by the way. I, I wish people wouldn't use that phrase uh, in, in our press reporting and the like, because it's, it's, not a, it's, it's a ceremonial title. His more important titles are general secretary of the Communist Party and also chairman of the Central Military Commission of the Communist Party. And that's, that's chief, that, that makes him the commander in chief, because the the military is not a state organ it is loyal uh only to
to the party. And so this is the party body that, that uh, directs the military's uh, uh, manning, training, and equipping, and planning for war. And so she is the chairman of that group, and he has two vice chairmen. He reappointed uh, Zhang Youxia as the first vice chair. Even though Zhang Youxia is, is now 72 years old, he's three years or four years past uh, what, what was normally uh, supposed to be a retirement uh, time. And, and I think it's partly because uh, he has been leading Xi's uh, efforts to uh, really to prepare for war, uh, particularly against Taiwan. Uh, and he also is uh, someone who fought alongside Xi Jinping's father. In uh, his his father fought alongside Xi Jinping's father during China's civil war. So there's there's a there's sort of a, a royalty kind of tie there, uh, red royalty. The second vice chair has gone, as you mentioned, to a guy named He Weidong. Uh, uh, he Weidong, who was a 65 year old, who actually had to get promoted uh, a couple of levels in order to get this job. And what's notable about him is that he was in command, command of the ground forces in the western part of China uh, during that uh, uh, period of, of high tension and violence uh, with India in the summer of 2020. Mm -hmm. Remember, there was a hand-to-hand -a -hand combat uh, between Indian troops and, and uh, Chinese troops uh, who had, uh, according to the Indian accounts, had strayed into uh, uh, Indian territory. These, these are contested borders. Uh, but then he was moved, uh, uh, He Weidong was moved from the Western Command there to uh, the Eastern Theater of China, uh, the, the part of it that is focused on Taiwan. And he right. oversaw the, uh, uh, the, the exercises, the military exercises, and what, what I call a dress rehearsal for war in August of this year, this following the uh, U.S. Trip? House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip, yeah. trip there. So it, that give, the, the, people should should uh you know not not feel a great degree of comfort uh in in these two picks okay and then the other name i want to ask you about is uh zhang fuping if i'm pronouncing it right who's the editor-in-chief mm. of bite dance who also interestingly <laughs> right. uh, bite dances as we all know owns uh owns tiktok um this individual also happens to be the secretary of the company's communist party committee so just for people to understand that Major companies in China have a Communist Party committee inside the company. Is that right? Yeah, you got it. I mean, look, all of, you know, ByteDance, like so many of China's dynamic consumer-facing platforms, uh, many of them were started by people who were not Communist Party members. Uh, as far as I'm aware, the founder of ByteDance uh, was not a Communist Party member. Uh, Jack Ma was or is. Uh, but but he's more of an exception. Um, but what what we saw starting particularly in 2017 onward was an effort under Xi Jinping to have the party assert control over these these uh, you know uh, uh, tech platforms. And so <clears throat> there were um, uh, Communist Party committees that were set up or strengthened in all of these companies. By the way, you never read about this in any of the. Uh, uh, any of the uh, public filings uh, to the SEC or to the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, th this is a, this is a huge oversight by the SEC uh, that that you, you see no mention of the fact that the Communist Party committees of these companies are actually the most po powerful components and decision making bodies in these uh, companies. And so what's happened is that most of the founders have been driven out of their companies or pushed to peripheral roles. And, and removed as uh, chief executives, but you have seen the rise of in prominence quietly, but unmistakably, and never reported to the SEC of Communist Party uh, committee chairman. And the bite dance uh, Communist Party committee chairman, as you mentioned, is Zhang Fuping, who also has the title of editor-in-chief of bite dance. And so bite By the dance, way, so we are, we're talking about the fastest growing internet and social media company in the U.S., I mean, it's not a U.S. company, but it is a company that is the fastest-growing service or product that Americans are using and consuming. Is but not only using consuming, it is now becoming the, a primary source of news. Remember, everyone thought it was uh, teenage girls dancing. It it is be a Pew Research poll uh, just a couple of months ago found that this is becoming a major source of news. 
for for Americans, particularly um, uh, very young ones, but really age 30 and under. Uh, and so what you have now is a Communist Party-run company, ByteDance, and its its most important overseas platform, TikTok, is 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 now perhaps the most powerful media and news company in American history, and it is run by uh, again uh, it has a Communist Party committee. The editor in chief is the chairman of that Communist Party committee. That Communist Party committee and ByteDance have. Uh, inked agreements with China's internal security apparatus, the Public Security Bureau, uh, promising that they will make sure that their algorithms are informed by, quote, correct political direction. Uh, and, and they've talked about how they are going to, they've pledged to, quote, uh, boost network influence and online discourse power and enhance public security propaganda, guidance, influence, and credibility. There, I've just described for you the parent company of the most powerful uh, media company in American history. This is so, a grave, grave uh, risk uh, to and oversight by the U.S. government. Uh, you know, to it is a grave risk to our democracy. I think it's a grave risk to free speech in the United States. So, it seems that the U.S. government, the U.S. administration, the Biden administration. In many respects, there's been like a continuum between the Trump administration and the Biden administration on a number of China policies, obviously dealing with the not letting China become a dominant manufacturer of semiconductors, of chips, uh, the way they have in other areas of telecommunications, uh, IP and manufacturing, and in some pharmaceuticals, and in advanced batteries, and in solar panels, and I can go on and on and on. They, they seem to be willing to... to uh, plant a flag and not let China, um, you know, uh, accelerate their, their any kind of dominant role in, in semis, which is, I think, very important. And yet you point out that there seems to be a reticence about confronting them over a company like TikTok. And and yeah. and the, the sort of the they're, they're fine with hardware, confronting them on hardware, but not um, dig digital content and news. What's going they on? They have the... They have the tools to do it, but like and you said, so countries, far we're like seeing India has banned TikTok. In India banned something like two hundred or, or more than two hundred Chinese apps with a snap of their fingers, uh, with 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 no, you know, that was a very wise decision on the part of the Indian government. Uh, every democracy should follow suit, should follow India's lead with this respect. But you're right. I mean, the, 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 the story of the first two years of the Biden administration on China policy is one of, of primarily continuity with the, the Trump administration China policy. And I think that's a great thing. This is, this is a bipartisan issue. It cuts, like you said, across uh, party lines. This is a, a basic national security challenge. Uh, uh, the the biggest uh, certainly in in uh, uh, generations, and um, and where the the, the Biden administration is now facing a, a crossroads. Uh, you know, they will either take action like India has done, and they've got the tools to do it to uh, to get rid of uh, uh, you know uh, Chinese controlled or heavily influenced uh, uh, content platforms. Uh, where, where the algorithms are literally governed by the Chinese Communist Party, um, uh, or, or they will um, make do some kind of mealy mouth mitigation measure where they say, well, as long as they, uh, you know, as long as they protect, um, uh, do a better job of protecting the data of uh, their American users, they're they're welcome to remain the most powerful media news company in American history, uh, heavily influenced, over overseen, and and perhaps controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. That will be a a, a significant uh, a detour away from what I think has otherwise been a, a pretty good thrust of of. Uh, uh, of the of the uh, China policy of the Biden administration, I mean the the data thing is is only part of the picture, and it is true that TikTok's algorithms uh, are un, are extremely, uh, in fact, unique in the degree to which uh, the the lengths to which they go to uh, capture um, data from their users, data that they should not uh, need in order simply to to make. Uh, 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 you know the content um, 
uh, more interesting or, or attractive. And so this is really, it's really sort of, it'd be like saying, look, you're welcome to sell fentanyl into American communities. So long as you promise, so long as the fentanyl dealers promise that, that they're going to protect the data of their users and not send it back to the drug cartel. This is the equivalent in digital terms to, uh, to that. So <laughs> I, I really hope the Biden administration uh, steps up and takes actions to protect our democracy, protect free speech, protect the public health of, uh, of our citizens, uh, because, uh, t you know, uh, t TikTok is, uh, is a serious problem. Okay, I want to come back. We'll come back to that. Uh, we're going to wrap. You've been incredibly generous with your time. I just want to, there was one question I meant to ask earlier and I didn't ask, and it's been something that's I've been thinking about a lot recently. And I just, even though it's a lot of order, it seems to me that over the last couple, basically ever since China ascended to the world, the WTO and um, seemed to begin a real integration with the global economy, there was this, Again, I'm saying this from afar as an observer. There was like this deal that the Chinese Communist Party had with the Chinese population, which is we will dramatically improve your quality of life. We will move hundreds of millions of people from rural areas into urban areas. We will create a vibrant and large uh, and, 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 and long-lasting middle class uh, by virtue of these steps we are taking, this liberalization, if you will, of our economy. But political repression and the tools of political repression are not going to change. We are still a version of a totalitarian regime. And that's the deal, even if it wasn't articulated as, as crudely as I'm laying it out. That was the deal. Your life will get better. There will still be con incredible political controls and controls on free speech and controls on you know, a whole range of, of areas affecting people's civil liberties. But your economic quality of life will get better. From afar, it seemed like most of the Chinese population had gone along with it. And it it seems to me like now that whole deal, that whole formula is falling apart because, because of the economic uh, trouble we've, we've talked about a little bit here, and we've talked about uh, headwinds that China's running into, self-inflicted, uh, and we've talked about on previous episodes with you, previous conversations with you, and because of COVID, and we can go on and on and on, the whole economic deal is not as reliable as it once was, and yet the political repression is still robust and reliable. And could that be part of what the ch Chinese public is reacting to? Yeah, this, this sort of a contract, like you say, which was isn't explicit, never was, but was sort of the mood of the country in the post-Tiananmen Square Massacre era, <clears throat> the idea that, look, the party's going to going to control politics, keep your nose out of it, but we're going to give you more opportunities to, to you know, get rich, to, to live where you want to live, marry who you want to marry. Uh, and and that, it, it is now threadbare, it, unquestionably. When you see, for the first time in 33 years, uh, these spontaneous protests across China that, by the way, involve students, they, uh, they involve workers, like those who were rioting at the iPhone factory, uh, it involves just everyday middle class and you know everyday people um, who gathered on on street corners in solidarity with uh, victims uh, of uh, of the zero COVID uh, uh, policy. Uh, what that that sends a very loud signal uh, that the th that uh, contract that you spoke of is uh, is in breach on one side, and um, and 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 I'm quite confident that. Xi Jinping uh, has has not missed this fact, uh, given the the reports on his meeting with the European Council president just a few days ago, where she acknowledged that there were protests and acknowledged that they were related to zero COVID, and and he also acknowledged that that it's going to be very important uh, for China to figure out um, uh, uh, vaccination, uh, although he didn't he didn't talk at all about foreign vaccines, but uh, but you know th this this shift back towards a loosening posture, back towards that experiment uh, that we saw a month ago, um, is a sign that um, uh, the, the people's voices matter. Uh, if, if China does lift zero COVID and shake this policy off, it will be precisely 
because of those people who were brave enough at enormous risk to themselves, consciously knowing that they were taking on those risks. The fact that they spoke up uh, is heroic. Every everyone in China owes uh, those those demonstrators uh, for uh, uh, potentially uh, reversing what's been a, a, an extremely destructive uh, policy. Hey, by the way, one one thing that occurred to me when we were talking about TikTok, yeah. there is a bill uh, in Congress that's been forward uh, forwarded uh, by um, Senator Rubio. Uh, yeah, and Mike Gallagher Florida, in the House, and, right? And yeah, Rep. Mike Gallagher in the yeah. House to ban TikTok. I it, look, I, I think this needs to apply to all of the content um, uh, providers that uh, you know are are governed and regulated by uh, uh, Beijing. Uh, if Beijing is going to try to influence international audiences, it should be constrained to having to do so on digital platforms that are regulated by and uh, and accountable to democracies. Uh, I will. Uh, in fact, I'll have Gallagher. We, we've had Mike on before, and we'll, we'll have him back on to talk about talk about the bill. I know you've you've um, you've written about it and been informally involved in some way. Um, so Matt, we'll leave it there. Thanks. You've been incredibly generous with your time uh, and your and your insights as always. So um, lest I I uh, overstay my welcome as the host and, and 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 risk not getting you to come back on again, I'm going to wrap there. So thanks uh, thanks for this conversation. It was uh, incredibly scary, interesting, enlightening. Uh, so I'm grateful. Dan, thanks a million. That's our show for today. If you want to follow Matt's work, you can do it at the Hoover Institution, a think tank at Stanford University, hoover.org, or at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, fdd.org. And also check out on the Foreign Affairs website, Matt's recent essay that we talked a lot about in this conversation. Call Me Back is produced by Alon Benatar. Until next time, I'm your host, Dan Senor. <laughs>